April 1871 edition of the American Naturalist magazine, Dr. C.A. White, no relation, wrote a personal story entitled Prairie Fires. Now, for those with my kind of education in history, 1871 is the time period for Little House on the Prairie. So now you can get that into your head. Dr. White was leading a geological survey in Iowa. In the middle of the night, he awoke to see a prairie fire uh, approaching the camp, raging out of control. He woke everyone up, grabbed a brand from their campfire, and he lit a new fire so that it would burn toward the oncoming prairie fire. He urged the men to take their blankets and fan the flame of this new fire so that it would grow and grow and burn. Once their fire had burned a sufficient area, they gathered all of the people, all of their equipment, and their horses into that burnt space. And then Dr. White writes, Scarcely had we secured the last article and passed within that charred circle when the dense flames leaping high in the air and rolling like surf upon the seashore gathered around us and enveloped us with their hot and suffocating smoke. We all, horses and men, stood there motionless, Conscious of our safety, it's true, but with an instinctive feeling of terror at the danger that we had escaped. We were on a hollow island in a sea of fire. Then the advancing flood of fire parted and went around us, and we were left in the intense blackness of the charred earth below, while the flames swept on over the distant prairie. The next morning found us in the midst of a dreary, blackened waste, but, quote, not without the smell of fire upon our garments. In our sermon text today, Isaiah chapter 13 through 23 the fire of God's judgment will rage over the nations. As we read, we'll feel the heat and smell the smoke as His justice consumes every evil in its path. But friends, the good news is this. There is a charred island where the fire of God's judgment has already fallen. My prayer is that you will run to the cross of Christ to find shelter from the God's judgment against your sin. Please take your copy of God's Word. Turn to Isaiah chapter 13. Our sermon text is Isaiah chapters, not verses, Chapters 13 through 23. That's 11 chapters. 5,000 plus words. If we were to read that as part of our worship service today, it would take 30 to 40 minutes. So obviously we're not going to read it this morning. We actually asked you to do that ahead of time. Now I want everyone to stand up who... No, I'm kidding. We're not even going to have time to deal with all of the specifics of this text. But I've chosen to preach these 11 chapters as one unit, a pericope, because they declare the same prophetic message over and over and over and over again. These 11 chapters contain oracles of judgment concerning 
11 different nations on earth. An oracle is a divine revelation communicated through God's spokesman, in this case, Isaiah the prophet, which usually is a pronouncement of either judgment or blessing. In this case, mostly judgment, but with some blessing. In these chapters, 11 representative nations emphasize or are the recipients of these oracles. So I want you to take your Bible, and this morning is going to require you to turn back and forth between these texts. So please put your eyes on your Bible. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. We provided a black one at your feet. Just grab a hold of that and find Isaiah chapter 13. I want to show you these 11 nations. First of all, look at chapter 13, verse 1, an oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw. Now, I want you to, as you're looking at the text, also kind of get a feel for where these nations are around Israel and Judah. The little green space there on the map, which is just an enlargement of the same map we provided for you in your um, Isaiah journals, that little green square is Israel and Judah. You can see it blown up there to the right. And then the larger section of the map, pardon me, to the left, and then the larger section of the map to the right. So the first oracle is about Babylon. That's in chapter 13 and 14. Turn to chapter 14, verse 25. The Lord of hosts has sworn, I will break the Assyrian in my land and on my mountains, trample him underfoot, and his yoke shall depart from my people and his burden from their shoulder. Chapter 14, verse 31. Wail, O gate, cry out, O city, melt in fear, O Philistia, all of you. Chapter 15, verse 1, an oracle concerning Moab, which begins with the Lord and Isaiah saying, because R of Moab is laid to waste in the night, Moab is undone. Chapter 17, verse 1, an oracle concerning Damascus. Behold, Damascus will cease to be a city and will become a heap of ruins. You can see how these are all around God's people in Israel and Judah. Chapter 18, verse 1. Ah, land of whirring wings that is beyond the rivers of Cush. Verse 2, to a nation tall and smooth, to a people feared near and far, a nation mighty and conquering. This is the oracle against Cush, which is modern-day Ethiopia. In chapter 19, just north of Ethiopia is Egypt. Chapter 19, verse 1, an oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt, and the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. Look at chapter 21. You'll notice that this oracle circles back around to Babylon now but this time with metaphor calls it the wilderness of the sea. Chapter 21, the oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea. Look at verse 9. What is this oracle? Well, the watchman in this wilderness declares, fallen, fallen is Babylon. Chapter 21, verse 11, the oracle concerning Duma, which is Edom. You can see it there to the south of Judah. 
Chapter 21, verse 13, the oracle concerning Arabia, a little farther to the east. Chapter 22, the oracle concerning the valley of vision. And then as you read, the valley of vision is a metaphor for Jerusalem. And then chapter 23, verse 1, the last oracle, chapter 23, verse 1, the oracle concerning Tyre. Wail, O ships of Tarshish, for Tyre is laid waste. Do you get the feel that these oracles are oracles of judgment against these 11 nations? 12 different oracles, 11 different nations. And notice that there are two cycles of oracles. Each begin with Babylon. And each has God's people, Israel and Judah, in the center of all of the action. Chapter 11 through 20, seven nations represented by the historical nations or cities. And then he rehitches and comes back around the second time in a second cycle, beginning with Babylon again. And rather than focusing on historic realities, he seems to use metaphor the wilderness of the sea, the valley of vision, even Duma and Arabia are thought to be metaphors of silence and night. And so those five nations in that second cycle, some suggest are God's judgments not on national enemies, but on spiritual enemies. Well, to be honest, the progression of these oracles Concerning these 11 nations, the progression of them is not clear to me, nor is it clear to most commentators. But the message is. And it's that message that we want to focus on here in this sermon today. We climb up to a Google Earth perspective and look down just as we are on this map. And from the Google Earth perspective, we see the one big message of these 12 oracles against 11 nations. And that one big message is this. The Lord God of Israel is the judge of the whole earth. The Lord God of Israel is not a small local deity like the powerful king of Assyria thought in chapter 10 when he said, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols the same as I have done to all of the gods of the other nations? The God of Israel is not a small local deity. The God of Israel is the judge of the whole earth. Look at chapter 13, verse 13. God says, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. You see, the heavens and the earth are trembling at the wrath of the, notice that language, the Lord of hosts, repeated time and time again in these 11 chapters because the Lord is Yahweh of Israel by his most personal name, Yahweh of Israel. The Lord of hosts means that he is the commander of the heavenly armies. It's that commander, that big, strong, cosmic God that is going to judge all the nations of the earth. Look at chapter 14, verse 26. God says in his oracle against Assyria, this is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth, not just these 11 nations but the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. Friends, the Lord God of Israel is the judge of the whole earth. 
And God has given us one great assurance. One great assurance and proof that he is the judge of the whole earth. Paul talked about this in Acts chapter 17. When he was in Athens, he was speaking with the philosophers about their, quote, altar to the unknown God. The Athenians wanted to cover all their bases, so they had an altar to worship the unknown God, just so that we don't miss anyone. Paul took that unknown God and said, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hand, nor is he served by human hands as though he needs anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this... He has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The Lord God of Israel is going to judge the whole earth by a man whom he raised from the dead, the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, the good news about the furious fiery judgment of God against sin is that the fires of his judgment have already fallen on the cross of Jesus Christ. And all who will come to Christ by faith will be forgiven of their sin, will be justified as if they had never sinned and will be not just brought into a covenant, but secured forever in a covenant with the Lord God, who is the judge of the whole earth. Friends, these oracles have one big message. The Lord God of Israel is the judge of the whole earth. And how you feel about that really depends on your standing before that judge, doesn't it? The same oracle that stirs up fear in those who reject God is the same oracle that brings hope, comfort to those who are God's people, whom he is actually protecting by eradicating all of the evil around them. Well, these oracles, as they contain one big grand overarching message for 11 chapters contain many, many messages. While we can't deal with them all this morning, I want to focus our attention on four messages, four themes that reoccur over and over and over again in these oracles. Because the reality that the Lord God of Israel is the judge of the whole earth has some implications. It has some implications for those who have set themselves against God, and it has some implications for those who find their shelter in God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm going to look at these four themes that come out of these 12 different oracles. What we understand in the first theme is this, that the Lord God 
of Israel, who is the judge of the nations, will judge every sin. The Lord God will judge every sin. These oracles serve notice to every nation and every person that one day you will stand before the Lord God of Israel and be judged according to His law. This is His kingdom. This is our Father's world. And just as He is the creator and judge, He is the lawgiver and the one before whom we will stand and give an account. And these oracles call the nations to judgment. The Lord has appointed, quote, a day of judgment. And in these oracles, it's described as inescapable and fearful. There's no way around it. Like a prairie fire that is rolling out of control, it's coming, and you can't get away from it. But you can find shelter in the midst of it. Look at chapter 13, verse 6 in the oracle concerning Babylon. Wail, Babylon, for the day of the Lord is near as destruction from the Almighty will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. Look at verse 13. God says, therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. Jay read for us earlier about this day. Look at chapter 19, verse 16. 19, verse 16. In that day, The Egyptians will be like women and tremble with fear before the hand that the Lord of hosts shakes over them. And in the Valley of Vision, chapter 22, verse 5, I love this concise statement. The Lord God of hosts has a day. A day of tumult, trampling, confusion. And friends, these oracles teach us that on that day, God will judge all evil And what's interesting to me is that these 11 oracles do not contain sin after sin after sin after sin, but they focus primarily on one sin of humanity, that of pride. Look again in the oracle concerning Babylon, chapter 13, verse 11. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity, What evil, what iniquity? Well, all of it, but look when he gets specific. Verse 11, I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. Chapter 16, verse 6, concerning Moab. We have heard of the pride of Moab. How proud he is. His arrogance, his pride, and his insolence in his idle boasting. He's not right. Look at chapter 23. Look what God points out in his oracle against Tyre. Chapter 23, verse 8. Who has purposed this against Tyre? Tyre being the bestower of crowns, whose merchants were princes, whose traders were the honored of the earth. Verse 9, the Lord of hosts has purposed it. Why? Two phrases. To defile the pompous pride of all glory and to dishonor 
all of the honored of the earth. What does the judgment day of God do? It lays low the arrogance and pride of humanity. It shows that God alone is worthy of all glory. Pride is the most basic and despicable of all evils because pride exalts self. Pride exalts self to the throne and sees everyone and everything in service of self, including God. Because although they knew God, Romans chapter 1 tells us that they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. It's human pride that takes life and breath and everything and uses it for ourself and never honors God as creator and gives thanks to him. Let me ask you, where do you see pride in your own life? Pride shows itself in self-sufficiency. You remember the parable in Luke chapter 12, the parable of that very successful, very foolish farmer who had done such a great job with his crops that he had to build bigger barns and he took full credit for it himself. And that night God came to him and said, Fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things that you have prepared... Whose will they be? It's nothing like the judgment of God to show us our insignificance and to show us the glory of the creator of the universe. I wonder if you have self-sufficiency in your heart. Pride shows itself in self-centeredness. I don't think any one of us can escape this one. If you're married, you know you can't. I think God designed marriage just to show us our self-centeredness. And then he brings kids along. And we see self-centeredness in them, which reveals the self-centeredness in us. James talked to the church about their self-centeredness. James talked about the sin of our words, the sin of our attitudes, the sins in our relationships. And then in chapter 4, he gets down to the root of all self-centeredness. And he says this, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So what is the antidote? Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your heart, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. The Christian life is the way of humility and repentance. And that's the response to these oracles. When we understand the reality that the Lord God of Israel will judge every sin, our response is to repent of sin now. That's exactly what he told Jerusalem in chapter 22, verse 12. The oracle, the valley of vision. Notice what God says to Jerusalem in chapter 22, verse 12. In that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for baldness and wearing sackcloth, the visible indications of grief. And behold... Joy and gladness. While God was calling for weeping over sin, his people were having a barbecue. Look in verse 13. They killed oxen, slaughtered sheep, they ate flesh and drank wine, and said, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. 
Verse 14, the Lord of hosts has revealed himself in my ears. Surely this iniquity will not be atoned for until you die, says the Lord of hosts. If we will not repent now of our sin, we will stand in judgment for it later. Friends, that is the decision before you today. Because the Lord God of Israel will judge sin. Every sin. Theme number two. As we study these 11 oracles, we see another theme arising. The Lord God of Israel, who's the judge of the whole earth, through judgment will do what? He will conquer every enemy of his people. Those two cycles center on the enemies of his people. The reason that that God is focused here on the Middle East is because his people there are in the middle. God's plan and purpose on earth is in and through his people. Both Israel under the old covenant and now the new Israel, the church, under the new covenant. And through judgment, God will conquer every enemy. The big ones and the small ones, the new ones and the old ones. The big ones like Babylon and Assyria, the old ones like Egypt and Moab, who have been around for centuries. Look at chapter 14. God assures his people that he's going to conquer their enemies. In the oracle to, against Babylon, who was the, the up, up and coming major superpower, but not yet. The, the one who's still kind of practicing in the gym, hasn't gotten his day in the ring yet. The Lord's going to conquer Babylon. Look at 14.1. Once God has used them to accomplish his will and his people, the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and will again choose Israel and will set them in their own land. Look at the end of verse 2. They will take captive those who were their captors and rule over those who oppressed them. Isn't that great? God conquers the enemies of his people so thoroughly that now Israel takes those who held them captive into captivity and rules over them. Chapter 14, verse 21, uh, 24, 14, 24. You got to follow me here. The Lord says he's going to conquer Assyria. Okay, what's the big deal with that? Assyria is the reigning superpower. You remember it was the king of Assyria that said, nobody can stop me. The generals of my army are all the kings of the nations that I've put down. Look what God says to Assyria. 14.24, the Lord has of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so it shall be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. I will break the Assyrian in my land and on my mountains trample him underfoot and his yoke shall depart from my people and his burden from their shoulder. Verse 27, the Lord of hosts has purposed and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out and who will turn it back? God says, you think you're a superpower? I'm going to break you and no one can stop me. And the most incredible part is that when God conquers the enemies of his people, he does it so thoroughly that his people now sing songs of taunt about their former enemies. Songs of taunt at these big, bad superpowers that on the day of God's judgment, he put down. In the car yesterday, my wife said, is the Hebrew word for song of taunt, nananaboo-boo? <laughs> Look at chapter 14, verse 3. 
when the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and the hard service with which you were made to serve, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. How the oppressor has ceased. The insolent fury ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked. Look at verse 9. Listen to the, the lyrics of this song of taunt. Sheol beneath is stirred up to meet you, Babylon. It arouses the shades to greet you, Babylon. Verse 11. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol. The sound of your harps. Maggots are laid as a bed beneath you, Babylon, and worms are your cover, Babylon. Verse 12, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you're cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will sit on my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the mark. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities and would not let his prisoners go home? Only God can do that to our great enemies. Conquer them so decisively that we under the shadow of his enormous wing can sing songs of taunt. Many of you have read Isaiah chapter 14 and that portion of that song and recognize that Babylon and the I will ascend, I will be like the most high. Babylon is a metaphor for the greatest of all of our enemies, sin, death, hell, and Satan. And God, through judgment that fell on the cross, conquered our enemies of sin, death, hell, and Satan. When the judgment of God fell on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, His death broke the power and the penalty of sin against all who will come to Him by faith. And when God raised him from the dead, Colossians chapter 2 says that his resurrection put the demons to an open shame and triumphed over them. And now, in Revelation chapter 1, Jesus says, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I hold the keys to death in Hades. That's what God does through judgment. If you're on the wrong side of the law, that will cause great fear. But if you are taking shadow, uh, shelter in the shadow of his wings on that charred island where the fires of God's judgment have already fallen, then the storm can rage around you, but you can sing songs of taunt back to your great enemy death, back to your great enemy sin and hell and Satan. Songs like, oh, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your sting? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, na-na-na-boo-boo. Right? Yeah. 
team number three. The Lord God of Israel is the judge of the whole earth. He's going to judge every sin. He will conquer every enemy. And he will expose the weakness of everything in which we trust. Through judgment, God exposes the weakness of the things that we think are strong and trustworthy. For example, chapter 17 in the oracle against Damascus, Damascus trusted the work of their own hands. And God says in this oracle in verse 7, in that day, man will look to his maker and his eyes will look on the Holy One of Israel. He will not look to the work of his hands. For you have forgotten the God of your salvation, and you have not remembered the flock of your refuge. Therefore, though you plant pleasant plants and sow the vineyard, though you make the plants grow and make them blossom, yet the harvest will flee away in the great day of grief and incurable pain. Damascus trusted the work of their hands. And through, ju- through judgment, God showed that it's not secure. In chapter 20, one of the most fascinating portions of these oracles, chapter 20, Judah trusted their friends. When they got into trouble, they didn't turn to God. They turned to their friends, Egypt and Cush. When the big bad Assyria was going to come on them, they turned for protection to Egypt and Cush. So you know what God did? And by the way, this is why you don't want to be one of God's prophets. Look at chapter 20, verse 3. Then the Lord said, As my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years as a sign. Okay, hold on. Poor Isaiah. The guy thinks, I get to be a preacher. And then he's got to walk around in his skivvies and barefoot for three years so that God can make a point. This is a visual sermon. What's the sermon? Hey, Judah, Egypt and Cush are weak and shameful, just like being naked and barefoot. Look at verse 6. And the inhabitants of this coastland will say in that day, Behold, This is what has happened to those in whom we hoped and to whom we fled for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria. And we, how shall we escape? God will expose the weakness of everything that we trust. Look at chapter 22. Another incredibly interesting story. Judah also felt secure, not because of God, but because of their king. And we've talked before about how their kings were pretty pretty nasty. Some of them good, some of them bad. But Judah felt secure because of their king. Until Hezekiah got sick, then they trusted his right-hand man, Eliakim. And so God says in chapter 22, oh, you trust Eliakim, huh? Okay, he's a good guy. In that day, I'm going to clothe him with your robe. I'm going to commit your authority to his hand. I'm going to place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. And then I'm going to fasten him, verse 23 of chapter 22. And then I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place. Look at verse 24. And they, God's people, will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house. Verse 25, in that day declares the Lord of hosts, the peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way and it will be cut down and fall and the load that was on it will be cut off for the Lord has spoken. Eliakim didn't give way because he failed or was a bad man. Eliakim gave way because he was human. 
The people of God hung too much on Eliakim. And God allowed that human peg to give way and their hopes to fall. Why? Because the Lord will expose the weakness of everything that we trust so that we learn there is only one peg that can hold the load of God's people. And it's God himself through his king, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's only one peg that can withstand the storms of life and that can hold your eternity. Only one peg. Don't build your life on your finances. They'll go away. Don't build your life on your ability to handle problems or your ability to make money. Don't hang your hopes on your children or your spouse. There is only one foundation that is secure for your life. Jesus said in Matthew, everyone who then hears these words of mine and does them will be like the wise man who built his house on the rock. When the rain came and the winds came, that house stood because it was built on the rock. But fools build their house on the sand. Friends, there's only one rock, the Lord Jesus Christ. And through judgment, God will expose the weakness of everything else we trust. I wonder, what are you trusting? Really, what are you trusting? What makes you feel most secure in life? And would it be God's grace to reveal the weakness of that thing so that you too will learn there's only one peg that can hold the load of your life. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ. The final theme that I want to point out quickly is that these are not all oracles of judgment. Repeatedly through these oracles, there is an oracle of blessing, blessing, blessing. About three or four times, God promises that he will redeem people from every nation. The Lord God of Israel, the God of Israel is not just the God of Israel. He's the God of the whole earth. And through these 11 oracles, He promises that he will redeem people from every nation. In chapter 16, he promises that people from Moab will be brought in to his kingdom. And listen to this in verse 4 and 5. A throne will be established in steadfast love and on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness Who does that sound like? King Jesus. In chapter 18, the oracle concerning Cush. After the judgment, the Cushites, people tall and smooth, will bring tribute to Mount Zion, the place of the name of the Lord of hosts. Through judgment... As we read earlier, God promises He's going to redeem people from Egypt in chapter 19. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt. As we read that, Egyptians returned to the Lord. They were reconciled with their enemies and there was a highway now between Assyria and Egypt. And then look at verse 24 of chapter 19. In that day, Israel will be a third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth. Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, 
the work of my hands and Israel, my inheritance. God did that through judgment. Judgment is only a bad thing when you stand in opposition to the judge and his law. But if you will kiss the Son, if you will honor God's King, He will become for you a place of refuge. My prayer is that every single person in the hearing of my voice and God's word this morning will run to that charred island of Calvary and find refuge and shelter at the foot of the cross. Cling to it and never leave. Let's pray together. Oh God, we thank you. As odd as it sounds, we thank you for judgment. Thank you that you have conquered our enemies, exposed the weakness of everything that we trust, and redeemed people from every nation by judging sin at the cross. When we come to the cross of Christ now, you protect us from sin, death, and hell. But when we refuse to come to Jesus, when we refuse to kiss the Son, then we're vulnerable to the raging fire of your judgment. Oh God, humble us, please. Help us to see that you have made a way of salvation if we will come to Jesus by faith. We praise you in his name. Amen.